Today on the podcast, we're hearing from Dr. Stephen O'Day. Dr. O'Day is the executive director of the John Wayne Cancer Institute and Cancer Clinic and director of Providence Los Angeles Regional Research. He's the professor of medical oncology, director of immuno-oncology, director of clinical research at the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Basically, he's just way smarter than us. He took some time out of his busy schedule to chat with Christina about some of the clinical trials that are currently taking place to combat COVID-19. He also reveals some of the more promising drugs researchers are looking at that could get us closer to solving this crisis. Dr. O'Day also addresses recent headlines regarding drugs like hydroxychloroquine and Gilead's remdesivir. Here's Christina's conversation with Dr. Stephen O'Day. So our two clinical trial drugs that we're currently using at the John, at St. John's, uh, Providence St. John's, are one of the drugs is really targeting the virus directly, and the other is targeting what's called this IL-6 protein that is a major component of this, this uh, negative inflammatory reaction that can be devastating. Uh, so we're looking at both of these approaches. And tell us the names of those drugs. So remdesivir is the antiviral drug that Gilead has, and it's obviously in the news. That it's a, it's there. Are, there are a couple different antiviral drugs that have been looked at. Drugs for uh, like Tamiflu, one of the influenza viruses, the HIV viral drugs, but none of them have seemed to have any activity uh, in this disease. Uh, remdesivir is a drug that we looked at in uh, Ebola virus infections, and it never got approved for that, although it did have modest activity in that viral disease um, and was sort of on the shelf. And then Gilead brought that off, and it turns out both in, in, in uh, animal models, and uh, it suggested that this might be an active drug for the current COVID-19 virus. And so obviously that's been a, a major player right now is, is one of the more promising agents to attack the virus. The other drug that we've, we're looking at not to attack the virus, but to attack this IL-6 protein that is a big instigator of the bad inflammation is um, uh, Cirilimab. Mm-hmm. And so this is a drug by, made by Regeneron, the company Regeneron. And uh, it has some, it's being used in rheumatoid arthritis now right. to inhibit this, but it's not been looked at yet as an antiviral or an anti-inflammatory in viral diseases. So this is the first sort of foray into that. So we're pretty proud at St. John's to have leveraged our sort of cancer research clinical trials network into our coronavirus and we have relationships with these companies and and we're able to to start testing these drugs uh in our in our covid patients and with the news that came out about remdesivir today um you know it's not so good in the first trial but how do you break that down is there still hope important to say you know there's a lot of information that's going to be coming out in the next few months uh, I think you're referring to uh, some preliminary data today from a trial in China. Uh, again, this is not, uh, it was leaked and um, uh, it's not clear, it hasn't been fully vetted yet, but this was a Chinese study that was not uh, fully sponsored by, by Gilead. And anyway, so we'll need to see what that data is. Then there's some, there's some very large U.S. studies. Um, 
thousands of patients now have been put on the U.S. studies, and there's also a randomized placebo-controlled study through the National, National Institutes of Health. So we're going to have thousands of patients' uh, data, and um, so we will see. Um, uh, clearly, we don't know yet whether remdesivir is safe or effective yet, and that's the whole point of clinical trials. But uh, it's certainly one of the promising drugs, and and we're you know, we're proud to, to be part of these trials that are trying to answer these really important scientific questions. So what's your advice to people who are reading these headlines and seeing so much, there's so much data, it's almost just mind-boggling. Be very careful. You know, um, uh, we as doctors and researchers, uh, a lot of people release, you know, anecdotal data or uncontrolled data. And obviously our clinical impressions are important. But, you know, there's a scientific process, and I just want your listeners to be aware that, you know, we have moved incredibly quickly from zero to 100 on getting these trials going, and uh, we're going to have data really quickly that will be, uh, you know, major data that will, will be very helpful to answering these questions. So, uh, but when, before the data comes out, there's lots of speculation and uncontrolled data is very, very um, unpredictable. So I would just say um, there's a lot of promise out there from a lot of different approaches. We're learning about how this virus uh, works, how it, how it attacks the body. We've, we've learned a tremendous amount. And it's that scientific knowledge about how this virus affects people, how it kills, that then allows the science to follow. And I think within a month or two, we're going to have pretty good uh, data to be able to say, are, are these drugs, these first few drugs that we're testing in large scale, are they safe and are they effective? And if they are, then it's going to really help us move the, fee, uh, the patient care forward. How do we know, how much do we know about immunity at this point with people who do have the antibodies? So this is a fascinating area right now that is also literally a moving target by each day. So we know that about 80% of people who get symptoms from this virus um, will have a viral infection that is no fun and you're, you know, you're, you're, you have to lay low for anywhere from four to eight days. It's sort of like a bad flu, uh, mostly upper respiratory symptoms, um, and muscle aches and other, you know, uh, and, and low-grade fever. So like, more like a flu. And that's about 80%. And then they recover. Right. Um, it turns out now, based on the large USC study, as you saw uh, over the weekend, and some Santa Clarita data, that there's probably, who knows, maybe two, at present in, in California, 2 to 4% of the population who may have already been exposed and never reported symptoms. So that's a lot of people too when you look at our population. So there's both people who might have been exposed and never even knew it, and who knows for sure whether they're immune or not. They may have antibodies, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're immune if you were subjected to more of a viral uh, load. So there's those. Then there's the 80% who clearly get sick, but thankfully they recover. And then there's about 20% who get sick, but after that first week or so, instead of getting better, they seem to get worse relatively quickly with what's called lower respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, 
cough and, and fever. And these are the patients that are really in trouble, that have been flooding the emergency rooms and our hospital beds and our ICUs. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very unpredictable. Once you're in that 20% and start to get really sick, then some of those patients can can rapidly uh, become uh, in respiratory distress to the point of needing to go on a ventilator. And then others will just wobble for a while, very sick, needing to be in the hospital, and then either recover or, or eventually need to go on a respirator. So it's, it's really, um, that's what we know about the disease. Um, what we're really trying to figure out is who's immune and who's not. Right. Once you recovered, just because you have antibodies doesn't always mean you're immune for life. It may mean you're immune for a period of months and then you might be able with the seasonal, the next round of the virus still get sick again. So tremendous unknowns out there, but we're gonna, you know, we've been crippled by the lack of testing, both for the virus and both for the antibodies. But we are getting more access, and in the coming months, we will understand a lot better on who's, who's immune and who's not, and hopefully, who's in that 20% from an early stage that's going to get really sick but maybe aren't sick yet. If we could identify those patients, once we have some better treatments, hopefully some of these IL-6 or, or antivirals will work, and then we could actually start using them before you have to get into the hospital. So a lot of... A lot of uncertainty, a lot of excitement, though, around progress, and we will, science prevails, you know, it really does. And, you know, in six months to a year, we're going to have a, so much more information on how to manage this disease. Mm -hmm. Well, so many people are getting incredibly antsy right now, you know, five weeks of these stay-at-home orders, and it feels at times like there's no end in sight, and given what you're saying, how we still have so much to learn about COVID-19. What would you say to our local leaders in terms of yeah. how to respond to well, this? I'm a, I'm a huge, I think California has done, both our mayor here in Los Angeles and the governor have done a tremendous amount in terms of social distancing. When you don't have adequate testing and when you don't have good treatment and you know a disease can go from good or mild to moderate to severe in, in a large percent, and it's about 20% is a large number. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to, you have to social distance. You, you have to, to prevent the contact that's allowing the spread. So I think we've, we've done a huge amount and flattened the curve for sure. Flattening the curve doesn't though necessarily mean that less people will eventually get infected because as a virus runs its course through a population, there's such a thing as herd immunity. And until you get to 70 or 80% of the population either having recovered and immune or they have a vaccine, the virus is still gonna work its way, maybe more slowly because you flatten the curve. So I think the message right now is we've done a, a tremendous amount right now to flatten the curve, but we still will have a lot of cases coming in the coming months. And until we get better antivirals and anti-inflammatories, which I think is coming, um, and better um, you know, vaccines, which is probably at least a year away, I think we're going to have to be very cautious in how we roll it out. We clearly have to get back to work. I mean, we can't, you know, indefinitely. But I think the, the sort of what the recommendations so far from California seem right. The sweet spot seems to be a little more really fairly strict 
um, isolation and then a very slow re-entry with better testing at that point so that as these outbreaks, which they will occur, start to occur again, you can isolate those outbreaks better and then hopefully by then offer them anti-good treatment so they never have to go to the hospital anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But I think hopefully by the fall, um, you know, we will have this much more managed. Even if we don't have a vaccine at that point, if we have good testing and better active treatments that prevent people from having to go on ventilators, that's a whole different psyche, I think, than what we're up against right now. Uh, I know. Right now, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. I tell you, seeing these patients, uh, you know, and even healthy patients going from zero to 100 really quickly, it's, it's a scary, scary thing for all of us. I think that's good for people to hear because what I've felt from, you know, when I start to talk to more and more people, whether it's out in the field when I'm reporting or different um, uh, people who are under the lockdown, they, they're they not hearing as much of that anymore. So they're increasingly saying, why are we still at home? And, you know, you're seeing the protests across the country. So it's important to hear from a doctor how scary it is for someone who sees stuff like this all the time. Yeah, and this is a very transmittable virus. You know, it, it does, it's not just contact droplets, but it's almost certainly has an aerosolized component to it. So it's very contagious and you're contagious probably four or five days before your very first symptom develops. So it's just, the message has to be not only to protect yourself, but it's your loved ones and it's the community because particularly more vulnerable people, and we're starting to understand who's most vulnerable. It's, it's clear, obviously, older people with lots of heart or lung disease, um, those kinds of patients' immune systems are much weaker, and, and they're at particular vulnerability. But I'll tell you, there's other risk factors that seem to be emerging, even in younger patients, and we're seeing people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s on respirators, and obviously, uh, obesity and having diabetes may be a risk factor because of how that affects the immune system. Right. Uh, people that are smokers with underlying heart disease, these could all make you vulnerable. So, you know, uh, it's not true that uh, you have to be 80 and in a nursing home to die from this disease. It's just shocking to see otherwise relatively healthy people on, on respirators. And, and it's all over so none of us should feel completely safe from this and that's why we have an obligation both to ourselves but our families and loved ones and our community to contain this i've heard from some doctors that they currently do not trust the antibody tests i mean in the last couple days some have been fda approved but what is your recommendation on that would you say that they're somewhat reliable well, you know, I think there's there's like 50, 60, 70 of them now. I think one or two now have just been approved under what's called an emergency access protocol, which again is much less rigorous than the normal process. I think the whole problem here is that these these antibody and rapid tests, uh, the controls are, are not well developed in terms of being very, very sensitive or specific. So obviously they're giving us some information, but I would be, you know, very cautious right now on how do we interpret the information, particularly the antibody tests, because depending on whether you're, 
you're just exposed, you're five days from being exposed, you're 14 days into your illness, or you're 28 days through your illness, there's different antibody significance to being positive or negative. And I, I, you know, I think it's a step. We obviously can't just stand, sit on the sideline and completely put our head in the sand. Uh, but I think like everything else, literally within a week or two or three, the science is going to refine which of these tests are better or not. And just as which of these drugs are, are working or not, you know, I think a month from now, or even two months from now, we'll be in a much better scientific position. So everyone just needs to, you know, take a deep breath and allow the science to inform us um, and not get too distracted with uh, a lot of background noise right now and people uh, having different agendas for what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and you earlier were talking about some of the sickest COVID-19 patients. St. John's Health Center, one of the few L.A. hospitals accepting transfers uh, throughout L.A. for the sickest patients. There's been remarkable results can you talk about yeah, the comprehensive really clinical research program? Because, you know, we're a community hospital, but we've, we have this sort of hybrid academic community hospital mindset. Uh, we're in a very competitive academic, you know, city of, of medical care. Uh, the, the John Wayne Cancer Institute has been a, an academic hybrid um, community hospital with St. John's for for over 20 years. So basically we've pivoted this this cancer research infrastructure to the COVID infection. But I think what, what we've been able to do is we put together a team of intensive care unit doctors, pulmonary, infectious disease, and cardiac surgeons because they, they work with this ECMO or this artificial lung device. And because we've had you know, this very aggressive uh, intensive care monitoring and ECMO artificial, so they can be both on a respirator, but also on an artificial lung, plus the clinical trials all in one. We've been willing and, and, uh, and to accept sick transfers of patients throughout the city. And uh, we recently had several LA police officers who came to us from outside hospitals. And I think what I'm most proud about is um, um, the fact that, you know, it appears we're listening to the data on how this disease is responding or not responding. And it's pretty clear that high pressures on the ventilator uh, to force oxygen into the lung once the patient's respiratory status has, has, has become compromised has not been very effective. So one of our strategies at St. John's through our team is to keep the pressures of oxygenation low on the ventilators and then use ECMO, this artificial lung device, which can basically take blood out of the body and back in. And when it's out of the body, force oxygen into the to, into the blood. So basically it, it's an artificial lung. It oxygenates yeah. the blood as it comes out of the body and then returns it, but in and, wow. and not force high pressures of, of air and oxygen into the lung, which is, seems to be causing more damage to the lung with inflammation and the virus. So our strategy has been uh, try not to ventilate patients, put them on the respirator if at all possible. But if we do, 
use lower pressures on the ventilator, and if appropriate, add the ECMO, the artificial lung, to rest mm-hmm. the lung for five or six days, mm-hmm. and then add our antiviral clinical trial drugs, hoping that they're going to uh, really bat down the, the virus, and then hit the inflammation with IL-6. And this strategy has been, again, too early to scientifically prove this works yet, but we're certainly seeing some really promising turnarounds on some very, very sick patients. So um, because of that, we're, we, we feel we have an obligation to accept transfers uh, as needed. And uh, other hospitals have not necessarily uh, chosen to do that, but it's the team we have in place that seems to really be uh, that, I, that I'm overseeing that really is, is, is very exciting. And something else that's pretty exciting, John Wayne Cancer Institute is actually collecting the biospecimen bank um, on all patients for future research. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so, you know, um, we, as part of our cancer trials, we're very good at collecting blood and, and creating databases on our cancer patients on clinical trials so that we can then understand later who's benefiting, who's not, and trying to look for biomarkers in the blood or their tumors. So we're well-versed in this. We have a huge bio repository of tissue of cell lines of tumors and patients' blood. So what we've done is, and we're not unique in this, but other academic centers around the country with the COVID patients, we're um, there in addition to being offered clinical trials with new drugs that might help them, we're, they're um, being offered uh, to be included in our database where we're collecting all of their information. We're we're measuring how they're doing, and then we're collecting blood so that their blood immune cells and their their inflammatory markers can be looked at. And we're going to be hopefully uh, once this gets through and we have a large set of data and blood, then we can share this data with some of the top scientific teams around the world uh, to help us understand better who's really going to get sick who's in that 20% and maybe starting treatments earlier. So we're preparing for the next phase. This is a war. This is a big initial battle, and we're going to get through this first battle. But this this virus is going to reemerge on and off over the next probably couple of years. And we want to be ready for that next surge. Maybe it's the fall. Hopefully it's not. But we want to be ready with better science that's going to tell us how to treat patients better. Maybe mitigate any sort of lockdown. I also wanted to ask, I'm curious what the data sharing is like in in your industry. Um, Is it different? Is it a different approach with COVID or is everyone kind of working on their own thing and hoping that they get the fix, so to speak? No, I think, I think, listen, this is, these kinds of, there's tremendous collaboration and that's true in cancer uh, and on a scientific level as well uh, as in this disease. I've seen tremendous, I'm on calls every week with groups, for example, cancer doctors who do a lot of immunotherapy, which is very important to how we treat COVID now, it turns out. So I'm on calls as part of SITSI, the Society of International, uh, the Society of Immunotherapy of Cancer, uh, with colleagues from China and, and Italy and New York, where all the hotspots, Seattle, and we're completely collaborating on what's the what's happening at your site, who's responding, who's not, what scientific studies are you doing, are you collecting blood, you know. So I think we're all very collaborative. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a team, a worldwide team effort. Yeah. 
what are you most excited about right now? Um, I mean, I imagine it'll be something that you guys are working on, but whether it's that or something you see uh, around the world, what do you think shows the most promise currently? Well, I, I think, you know, uh, I'd love to be back to, uh, full-time with the cancer work because that's my passion. And where, But what, I, what this has made me realize is science is so overlapping now. You know, cancer research, immunology, infectious disease, and it's all sort of centers on this immune system. About 10 years ago, cancer treatments had a revolution of what we call the immune treatment of cancer. Uh, it started in an area where I've been working in melanoma with some very potent immune drugs that stimulate T-cells, the body's defense against cancer. And anyway, we've made tremendous progress with, with immune treatments in cancer across a wide variety of cancers. And it turns out, obviously, these T-cells, one of their other major effects in, in, is to defend us against cancer, but also against viral infections. So obviously, I think the ability to crosstalk between infectious disease, virologists, immunologists, cancer doctors is really extraordinary. And I think it's, my point is, I think when we get through COVID, this knowledge of scientific knowledge breakthroughs will be pertinent to back in, in cancer and in, in different areas. So, you know, sometimes, you know, these kinds of crises, you know, force the best out of us, but they do move us forward too, because we are a resilient uh, people and we're a resilient community. Yes, we are. So, but I don't know if you answered my question in terms of what you think has the most promise, um, any specific treatment that you're, you're working on or that you've seen on the market. Everyone was talking about hydroxychloroquine. Uh, yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, you know, again, early data that was uncontrolled. We still don't have controlled data with this. this the more recent trial that came out uh, from the VA was a retrospective trial. So it wasn't, a, you know, a prospective the highest level, you know, suggested maybe it didn't work or even that it could lead to more deaths from side effects. So, again, that's why we have to wait. I think, you know, right now the two areas that will have the soonest readouts from any will be the antiviral drug, remdesivir, and then the uh, anti-IL-6 drugs. And there's uh, two companies uh, that has them. Um, Roche and Regeneron have two IL-6 inhibitors. So I think those are the, the three uh, drugs, one antiviral and then the two different IL-6 drugs that will have the most uh, early and, and, and significant data to be able to say, are they safe and are they working? So I, I look forward to that. And then there's all kinds of other uh, smaller pilot studies that we're, we're involved in. Uh, that will be like scientifically really interesting and may eventually you know, lead to new treatments. But I think right now those are months away, not weeks away. Is there anything I'm missing? Any um, burning desire you have to share? Any of your other incredible work you're doing? No, I, this has been wonderful to have the time to, to talk to you about how passionate we are bringing teams of doctors together with different expertise but all around trying to help our patients who are suffering from this virus and, and reverse, hopefully, these complications. And soon I'm really hopeful that the fear factor around this virus will not be what it is today because we'll be able to 
obviously uh, prevent it or with a vaccine, but also treat it more effectively so patients will not need to be hospitalized. My last question would be, do you think we will be more prepared for the next one, given what we're learning and doing now with this? Absolutely. I mean, this has been a real soul-searching uh, uh, process for the whole country and the world. Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, these kinds of viral pandemics are, are going to be part of our future, particularly with a global society that we are. But obviously, we, we weren't well prepared. The world wasn't really well prepared. But the, lear the lessons learned are huge on so many levels. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, yes, we will be better prepared for the next virus that comes along. And most importantly, we'll be better prepared for any sort of um, uh, reiterations of this virus that sort of plays it out over the next uh, couple years here. Thank you for your insight, your brilliance, and the whole world's counting on you and watching, no pressure. <laughs> well, thanks for having me today. And uh, let's all stay safe and follow the recommendations of our governor and our mayor and our scientific community. More Coronavirus Daily on Monday. To make sure you never miss an episode or to listen to some of our previous episodes, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us at ktla.com slash coronavirusdaily. Follow all our KTLA podcasts on Instagram and Twitter at KTLA Podcasts. I'm at Sounds Like Bobby on Instagram, and you can find Christina on Twitter at Christina KTLA and on Instagram at Christina Pascucci. For the very latest coronavirus headlines anytime, be sure to visit ktla.com or download the free KTLA News app. Thanks for listening.